Hello and welcome to Seeing Red, a true crime podcast. I'm Mark. And I'm Bethan. Welcome back, guys. Thank you for joining us once again. You've got a pretty epic case this week, haven't you, Mark? It certainly is, yeah. Before we get to that, though, we will do the usual and we will take a moment to thank all of our existing Patreon supporters and especially our newest supporters over the past week. So they are Kimberly Durham, Jessica Carr, Agatha Brolin, Hannah underscore I'm a real author underscore We Believe You, Pau Estefes. Thank you to each and every one of you. Thank you so much. If you would like to join these guys, all you need to do is head over to patreon.com slash seeingredpodcast. Thank you so much, all of you. That's really amazing. And yeah, if you do want to join these guys and you're able to, you get bonus episodes, book club, crime wave, stickers, all sorts. And there's a few different tiers of support that you can choose from. So uh, let's get on to today's case. Apologies if it's a bit echoey here. I'm in a spare bedroom recording this. There is a lot of furniture in here, but I can hear it echoing. So uh, what can you do? That's what happens when you live in a castle or a mansion, isn't it, Mark? The rooms just don't have enough furniture to fill the space. Exactly. I can't afford the furniture too. (laughs) Okay, on on to uh, this week's episode then. So in the beautiful English county of Wiltshire, just nine miles south of the iconic prehistoric stone circle at Stonehenge, you'll find Salisbury, a picturesque historical city. You called it Salisbury? How, how do you say it? Salisbury? Salisbury. 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 Okay, I'm going to try and say Salisbury. Uh, so a picturesque historical city that is probably best known for its stunning medieval cathedral, which is home to one of the four surviving copies of the Magna Carta. And the city has a rich history with evidence of human settlement in the area dating back to the Neolithic period. I have no idea when that is, but let's just kind of agree it's thousands of years ago. It will be a long time ago, won't it? That sounds like cavemen, I guess. Salisbury is also renowned for its beautiful countryside, which includes areas of outstanding natural beauty, such as the New Forest and Salisbury Plain. And these areas are popular destinations for outdoor activities such as hiking, cycling and also horse riding. In addition to its rich history and natural beauty, Salisbury is also a vibrant and thriving city with a strong cultural scene. There are numerous cultural events and festivals held in the city throughout the year, including the Salisbury International Arts Festival, which attracts artists and performers from all over the world. And the city also boasts several museums and galleries and theatres, making it a popular destination for those interested in the arts. And I have to say, Salisbury is one of the areas, one of the cities I looked at moving to when I moved from Bristol last year. Yeah, I looked at Salisbury. It's a really nice place. I then decided that I didn't really want to kind of die from water poisoning uh, over the next 10 years. So I didn't live there. Mm, uh, controversial. So, no, I'm just very controversial. But I mean, I, I don't know. I kind of, obviously, this is what we're talking about, this uh, poisoning in Salisbury in 2018. Um, and I know that the, the city is cleared from a health perspective, but it does make you wonder, doesn't it? Do you know what, though? If you've got a choice and something worries you, you make the decision and that's valid it's your decision and I remember when you when we thought our water at work had Legionnaire's disease and you genuinely started to have symptoms of stuff because it got so much into your mind that we had (laughs) Legionnaire's disease in our water and do you remember we used to send Jordan to go buy bottled water every day because that stupid water guy told us that it was in there was like you've had a tank full of standing water and it's really dangerous don't drink it anymore and then the next person came along and was like, he's just talking absolute shit. That's not true. But it got in your head. So, yeah, I would say don't go to Salisbury because you would start to worry. I would, yeah. I'd start developing symptoms. <laughs> uh, despite its small size, Salisbury has a strong economy with a thriving retail sector, a growing tourism industry and a strong presence in the technology and creative industries. And the city is also home to a number of well-respected educational institutions, such as the University of Salisbury and also Wiltshire College, which attracts students not just from across the UK, but from around the world too. On paper, Salisbury is a shining combination of Britain's rich history and aesthetic beauty, which is what also makes this week's story even more shocking. 
for who could have ever predicted that this postcard-perfect city in the heart of England would, in March 2018, become the scene of a deadly chemical attack perpetrated by ruthless foreign government officials in pursuit of a murderous agenda? The events that we'll be discussing had far-reaching implications, not just for the individuals involved, but also for the international community overall. The use of a military-grade nerve agent on the streets of a small English city, because it really is a small city, isn't it? It really is, yeah. Was a shocking reminder of the dangers that exist in this world, and the lengths to which some will go to achieve their vengeful aims. So before we get into the nitty-gritty of all of this, and we're both really excited to delve into this, let's hear from our first and only sponsor today, which is Gusto. The terrifying story begins on the afternoon of Sunday the 4th of March in 2018. The residents of Salisbury were feeling the after-effects of a violent winter storm that had blown westwards across the UK, somewhat ironically from Siberia, and it had brought with it heavy rainfall, snowfall, gale-force winds and bitterly cold temperatures too, and the storm had been so severe that the UK media had branded it the beast from the east. Do you remember that? I do remember this. I remember it being it was a absolutely storm. crazy. And it, um, it really had an Im- impact across the entire country, didn't it? So it was very newsworthy and, and certainly, yeah, that kind of set the scene for uh, the time that we're heading back to for this time. I remember getting some really nice pictures in the snow. Not going to lie, that was a pretty decent snowfall. We didn't really get, we don't get much around here, do we? So that was really nice. But there was a lot of um, disruption. There was a lot of issues um, on the rail and on the roads it was def- like the beast from the east is like one of those catchphrases that I think we'll all remember for quite a long time because it was really severe. To the residents of Salisbury, the so-called beast from the east was just a media-generated term for an unfortunate run of excessively inclement weather conditions. What they didn't know, however, was that the real monster from the east was lurking much closer to home. Oh, I love that! Is poetic. I like. Isn't that, that poetic? At around 4.30 in the afternoon, local Salisbury paramedics were called to the scene of a suspected drug overdose. An elderly gentleman had lost consciousness while sitting on a bench in the town centre. On the floor next to him, a younger woman had fallen off the bench and had begun having a seizure. The paramedics reached the two patients quickly and soon realised that their condition was critical. The elderly man's body was rigid, his breathing was shallow and he had a weak pulse. The woman, who was much younger, was experiencing severe breathing difficulties as well as convulsions, and witnesses later described how she had a terrified look in her eyes and was unable to control her body. Well, that is ju- this is just terrifying, isn't it? Even to witness, but for the people suddenly suffering this. Yeah, because of course, and we'll come on to this in more detail, but of course people that saw the woman on the ground and the man slumped on the bench just assumed at first glance that this is a a drunken couple um, or a couple of tramps or a couple that have taken spice or something like that, So, uh, which absolutely wasn't the case. Both of the yet-to-be-unidentified patients were loaded onto separate ambulances and rushed to Salisbury District Hospital on the outskirts of the city. On the way, paramedics battled urgently to stabilise the condition of both of their patients. Speaking later to the media, the paramedics who had worked on the pair stated that the patient's symptoms had all the hallmarks of an accidental drug overdose, and that nothing seemed altogether too weird at this point, given the circumstances. However, one police officer who had attended the scene wasn't so convinced that this was the case, and raised concerns to his colleagues that something sketchy was going on. By the police's rationale, the entire incident just looked and felt highly unusual. The two patients were well-dressed and well-groomed individuals who were a million miles away from what you'd expect the average drug addict to look like. Furthermore, there was absolutely no evidence of any drug paraphernalia on or around the busy town centre bench where they'd been discovered. There were no needles, no bongs, no crack pipes, no leftover drug residue, literally nothing. There was no shortage of witnesses who had observed the pair sitting on the bench, but nobody had observed any kind of drug abuse taking place. Odd, isn't it? Because we know from working in town centres, you wouldn't see well-groomed, well-dressed people. Obviously, well-groomed, well-dressed people do abuse drugs as well, but they wouldn't tend to do this in a city centre, on a bench, in public, in daylight. Whereas we have witnessed people 
shooting up heroin outside in in public and drug deals going on and people doing whatever mm. and the people who are confident enough and able to just do it there and then are the people who have literally no other even like they don't even care because they're in such a a downward spiral so it's unlikely yeah i think the police are so correct here like it is unusual it's highly unusual and suspect because you just don't see that you would see like people who just look really down on their luck wouldn't you you would yeah you're absolutely right we've we've witnessed some awful things but um but yeah usually those people do have a particular look they are people that are really struggled with addiction mm-hmm. quite often they're homeless as well so yeah. um yeah i think it, this was an unusual presentation of 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 this kind of situation if it was going to be a drugs overdose it was highly unusual so yeah they they were suspicious that something else was at play So if it wasn't a drug overdose, then what were the odds that they had both experienced a random medical emergency at the same time while sitting on the same bench? The police's concerns were further validated once the patients arrived at hospital, where both of their conditions took a sudden and alarming nosedive. Medical staff became increasingly more perplexed as to the cause. Despite their best efforts to treat the apparent drug overdose, the patient's bodies were not responding the way the doctors would have expected. So they they obviously have, you know, certain drugs, don't they, that they administer if they think it's an opiate overdose or if it's a cocaine overdose. There is something that can reverse those effects and you would see pretty instantly the impact of that and that's not the case here. Further tests also failed repeatedly to detect any trace of illegal narcotics in their blood. The case was becoming more and more strange with each passing minute, and within a few hours of arriving at the hospital, both patients were experiencing multiple organ failure and had fallen into comas, their lives now hanging precariously in the balance. The police who were being kept informed of the patient's progress were eventually told the troubling news of their rapidly deteriorating conditions and by now they were utterly convinced that they were not dealing with a double drug overdose. It was clear that this incident was highly unusual and there were growing concerns that something more sinister was at play. But just what was it? It seemed almost too surreal to even consider but some officers began to suspect that maybe the incident wasn't a random medical emergency at all and that perhaps, somehow, a crime had been committed. Despite not having much evidence to support such a theory, the police followed up on this line of inquiry all the same, and officers were sent back to cordon off the scene. The police then began to look deeper into the two patients. They were hoping that by looking into their lives and backgrounds, they might discover some indication into exactly what was going on. And it was here that things began to take a deeply troubling turn. The elderly gentleman who had been discovered close to death on the park bench was carrying an ID card that revealed his name, Sergei Skripal, a 66-year-old resident from Salisbury. It was also revealed that his younger female companion was actually his daughter, Yulia Skripal, a 33-year-old Russian national who was in Salisbury in order to visit her father at the time of this incident. Sergei had no criminal record and very little was known about him as he appeared to have kept an extremely low profile. However, through a simple Google search, a police investigator discovered a Wikipedia footprint on his name. When the officer ventured further down the online rabbit hole, more evidence was gathered that seemed to support a theory that all of them were considering but nobody wanted to believe. Sergei Skripal was born in July 1951 in the Soviet Union, now Russia. He served in the Soviet military and later became a colonel in the GRU, Russia's notorious military intelligence agency. The GRU operates in a highly secretive manner and is known for its use of unconventional tactics and operations. It is believed to have a large network of agents and informants throughout the world and has been accused of carrying out cyber attacks, assassinations and other covert operations in order to advance Russian interests. The GRU is considered to be one of the most powerful and influential intelligence agencies in the world. In other words, the GRU are Putin's specialist thugs. If he needs someone killed, the GRU would be the ones to gladly roll up their sleeves and get their hands dirty. They're probably the scariest people in the world, aren't they, really, I think? I would say right now. Yeah, when we think of stuff right now, they are probably the ones to be the most scared of. 
The man they were looking into was a former high-ranking spy who had once been closely linked to one of the most feared intelligence agencies in the world. In 1999, Sergei retired from military service and then began working as a security consultant for several companies. In 2004, he was arrested in Russia on charges of spying for the UK's intelligence agency MI6. He was convicted of treason in 2006 and then sentenced to 13 years of hard labour in prison. However, in 2010, he was discreetly released in a prisoner swap and then he was given British residency and settled in Salisbury, uh, probably under the you know close eye of MI6, I would have thought, and most likely still working for them in some capacity. And this was all kept from the media. These deals are done all the time. Actually, that just makes me think on the whole, we've kind of talked a bit about it probably on uh, Crime Wave, not necessarily on the main show. We've touched on Shamima Begum, haven't we, before? Mm -hmm. And this did make me think of a few years ago, there there were a lot of rumours circulating online that Shamima had been settled in a British overseas territory. She'd been taken out of that camp in Syria, mm. plucked out of it, given a new identity and, and taken to a, a, another country. Um, and that obviously didn't prove to be true. But, it, you know, there was a lot of credence to that. And these kinds of things do happen quite often. You'd be really surprised. Not that I know much at all, just rumours I've read online that, that you then find out actually are true. So it is really interesting that this happened. This was a deeply troubling development in the investigation. Sergei was a traitor to Russia, a country with a notorious reputation for its ruthlessness. Given that Sergei's actions in the past amounted to the textbook definition of high treason, there would logically be no shortage of very powerful people that would have wanted him dead. It was beginning to look like Russian intelligence had no intention of allowing the traitor Sergei Skripal to enjoy his freedom. Perhaps they were concerned that he knew too much and that his collaboration with MI6 was still a threat to their own international interests. And so they made a deadly attempt to silence him forever because I think that's fair that they assumed that he was probably still working for MI6. They'd looked after him. They'd negotiated his his release. They would brought him over to the UK. They'd settled him, paid for a home for him most probably paid him with an allowance most probably and in return it's normal that they would want something so I I would say he probably was still working for them in some sort of capacity even if he wasn't Russia are not going to like that you were a traitor so would they want you to still just have a happy carry on your I think I do agree with you and I think you're right I'm sure that he was still working for them he was far too valuable not to be with his experiences and his knowledge but even if he wasn't, and Russia knew he wasn't, I don't think Russia would want him to stay alive because of what he had done against the country. Yeah, and if he's not if he's not working for MI6 at this point, then he's kind of like a sleeper agent, isn't he? He's, he's always there ready for them to go to and say, you know, we've got a job for you, we need you to do something. So yeah, I, I can understand from their perspective that he was a real danger, a real threat to their... Uh, international intelligence and security of their own country. In the years preceding this incident, relations between the UK and Russia had already been heavily strained, largely due to several diplomatic incidents and different moral stances on issues such as the conflict in Syria and also Russia's use of chemical weapons. And obviously it's a really different state that we're in now, even just in these kind of short five years since this happened and relations have deteriorated so much. But even up until this point, or, you know, even in the kind of early noughties, it deteriorated massively. The UK and other Western countries had also imposed economic sanctions on Russia in response to its aggressive action towards its neighbour Ukraine, which obviously was always building up to what, what began a year ago. In other words, the state of relations between the two countries was complex at best and characterised by a mix of cooperation on certain issues and deep-seated mistrust and hostility on others. The sudden realisation that Russian top brass may have dispatched assassins to the UK to wipe out an enemy of the state using a chemical weapon was comparable to a war crime, something that, if proven to be true, the UK government simply would not be able to overlook. What started out as a suspected drug overdose in an unassuming rural English city was now threatening to ignite another major international incident. However, the police needed to prove beyond doubt that Sergei and his daughter had been poisoned. 
As chance would have it, Salisbury is located not far from Porton Down, a science and technology park in the UK that is home to the Defence Science and Technology Laboratory, the DSTL, one of the country's leading centres for scientific research and innovation. Porton Down's main role is to research and develop methods to prevent soldiers from chemical weapons on the battlefield. So this is their area of expertise. Wow, so they are just literally there to protect our soldiers in like researching and wow yeah because if you think in war uh chemical weapons Mm -hmm. are used an awful lot so port and down are there to kind of look at the different chemical weapons that are available what damage they can cause and what we can do to mitigate against that damage so I, i guess they would be coming up with antidotes to to some of this stuff The police sent specialists to the park bench to take surface samples, which were urgently dispatched to Porton Down. The samples were tested rigorously, and within hours, scientists presented their terrifying conclusions. The samples had been found to be heavily contaminated with a deadly chemical toxin called Novichok, a class of highly potent nerve agents developed by the former Soviet Union in the 1970s and 1980s. The name Novichok means newcomer in Russian and refers to a group of nerve agents that were developed as a new generation of chemical weapons. And Novichok is extremely potent, and exposure to even a tiny dose can cause serious harm to the nervous system, leading to symptoms such as muscle weakness, respiratory distress, and death. And actually only takes one milligram of Novichok to cause death. Um, That's possible with one milligram. Anything above two milligrams makes death pretty much guaranteed. That is a tiny, tiny amount. That is crazy. And what what they ultimately ended up finding, which I will come on to much later on, was enough Novichok in Salisbury or surrounding Salisbury to kill thousands of people. And it wasn't a lot. It was just a a little bit in a perfume bottle. It is terrifying, isn't it? And I remember the the perfume bottle element. You just think, like human nature and the evil of human nature is just... Even doing this podcast... And we see so much, it's it's sometimes easy to kind of think like people snap and people have emotions and people react. But this has been purposefully created, developed, tested and used. And like some somebody chose to do that. Like what the fuck? Like it's one thing to get in your car when you're smashed and make a stupid fucking mistake and kill somebody or to lash out and even when we get down to some of the people who are just nasty abusive people you can there's there's still this big difference between that and then this kind of element of human nature where you're basically creating something for future generations to use that is this deadly and horrific death as well or like oh just some stuff like this just boggles my mind that the human race can be that fucked up yeah it it always worries me so uh, and we won't get into the whole political kind of stuff but nuclear weapons really concern me because i just sort of think obviously someone like putin could just have a bit of a moment and press a button and then a fucking nuclear rocket sent over to the uk yeah and there's no getting away from that side of things yeah No, but you've got stuff like this. A litre of this could probably wipe out half of our fucking population. So, yeah, it's so worrying that man has made weapons of absolute mass destruction. The exact composition of Novichok is not widely known, but it's believed to be purposely made from a combination of chemical compounds that make them particularly dangerous and also difficult to detect. Port and Down summarised that even a small exposure to this particular sample of Novichok would be more than enough to kill multiple people. And as I said, you know, ultimately when they found this perfume bottle with it in, that just that small amount, you know, a few dozen millilitres would have been enough to kill thousands of people. It came as a surprise to no one when Port and Down staff analysed blood and tissue samples from the two hospital patients when both proved to be positive for Novichok contamination. And of course, these findings changed everything. It proved those initial suspicions to be correct. And kudos to some of those police officers who pretty much immediately said, this is really weird. This is not a drug overdose. This is not a coincidence of two people. Uh, just happening to have some kind of medical emergency and falling ill at the same time in public. Someone has done this to them. We don't know how, but someone has done it and it could be poisoning. So, you know, amazing police work there. 
The police were suddenly embroiled in a major incident that amounted to a chemical weapons attack on the United Kingdom. Not only that, but it was now clear that anyone who had had contact with the two poisoning victims, so the paramedics, the responding police officers, even members of the public who had initially tried to offer basic first aid to Sergei and Yulia, they'd all exposed themselves potentially to Novichok and they were now at risk of serious harm. And also it doesn't uh, the, the effects of Novichok don't happen instantaneously. So you might think, well, I've been exposed to it, but I feel okay. But it can be several hours later before the effects truly come into play. You'd be absolutely terrified. And like, you'd you'd want to go home and see your family because what if? But then equally, you wouldn't because you could potentially be contaminating them if you didn't realise that you still had something on you. Like, what a horrific realization as well of oh hang on a second like after I left the scene I went to that chip shop or like I popped into the supermarket or I went and picked my kid up from school and hugged her loads like geez this was a a super interesting uh example of well almost like an early predecessor to something like covid which we then saw just a year or two later because you ha- they had to bring in things like contact tracing and it really showed how one person who is contaminated with something can so easily spread that to thousands of people, basically. Um, so it was a very similar principle to what, what we saw with COVID-19, people in hazmat suits, that kind of thing. The case rapidly made its way up the chain and landed in the offices of Scotland Yard, MI5, MI6, and also, of course, eventually at Downing Street. And after a much deeper investigation by the security services and counter-terrorism agents at Scotland Yard, it was agreed that the incident had all of the hallmarks of a professional assassination attempt, probably carried out by Russian operatives acting on behalf of the Russian government. Because of course we've seen this before, haven't we? And I'll come to that in a moment. As is often the case in cases like this, the media were quick to pick up on the story. And within a day or two, the story was being widely reported on. And the narrative was very much that Russians had attacked the UK using chemical weapons, even though that hadn't been proven at this point. And as speculation grew, fears of escalation and possible British retaliation began to circulate. And of course, there were these huge concerns around contamination within Salisbury, perhaps further afield as well particularly with the water supply of Salisbury. It was just terrifying to be close by, wasn't it, at the time? Because you just didn't know for sure, like anything. The situation was beginning to spiral out of control at this point. As the government began working out a strategy to deal with the international fallout, police back in Salisbury were working overtime to manage the crisis on their doorstep. After figuring out the identity of the two casualties, police officers were dispatched to Sergei's home address, a semi-detached house in a quiet suburb of Salisbury. And the police wanted to make sure that there were no other casualties at the property, which of course could have been the case. Wearing full-bodied protective suits, two officers arrived at the property and forced entry just after midnight. And a lot of this kind of stuff was done under the cover of darkness. And there's a brilliant BBC drama, I think it's a three-part drama. I think it's just called The Salisbury Poisoning, or The Salisbury Poisonings. And it might be on iPlayer. Definitely recommend watching that. It's very accurate to uh, the true events, and it, it really goes into detail. It's an amazing drama, highly recommend it. So after a brief sweep of Sergei's house, the officers left, satisfied that there were no additional casualties to worry about. However, as they drove back to Salisbury Police Station, one of the officers, PC Nick Bailey, began to experience some strange symptoms. His pupils dilated and he began to feel hot, sweaty and nauseous. Sounds like me after an absolute bender, to be fair. Oh my God, can you imagine they just driving along and you... You just start feeling like after everything that's happened, I would be super paranoid. And also, I mean, I'm guessing Novichok would cause severe nerve pain. And if anybody listening to this has ever experienced nerve pain, so that can be back pain, um, neck pain, it can be Mm -hmm. toothache, yeah, anything like that. I had shingles last year that that's uh, sort of attacks the nervous system and that was nerve pain and it's a really unique type of pain and it's it's just horrific so all of these things with probably quite severe nerve pain you're not even going to be thinking straight necessarily so 
Nick Bailey, this PC, might not have even been thinking that, well, he might not have been putting two and two together and thinking, oh shit, have I been poisoned? And he, he didn't really think that, but I think it's just because he's almost going out of his mind with these symptoms, basically. So, um, yeah, he just kind of put it down initially to tiredness and stress. He went home and went to bed, hoping that he'd be able to sleep it off. But he wasn't really thinking straight, I don't think, because of the symptoms and how they were manifesting. And the following morning, as the news of a suspected chemical attack in the heart of England swept across the TV, and of course social media too, Nick Bailey woke up to find that his condition was rapidly deteriorating. He was experiencing a dangerously high fever, accompanied by involuntary muscle spasms and a headache that seemed to get worse by the minute. Oh my god, this is just awful. It's terrible, and I'm going to talk about Nick in a bit more detail right at the end. His family rushed him to Salisbury District Hospital, and he was placed in intensive care pretty much straight away. And of course, after having his blood samples sent to Porton Down for analysis, he too was soon confirmed to have been a, a victim of this Novichok attack, and he had somehow absorbed the deadly nerve agent whilst inside Sergei's home. Um, so just horrific and horrific for his wife and his family. Oh, it's just... So scary. It really is. It's panic inducing. And of course, you know, the family are thinking, well, have we been contaminated with this? And the drama is brilliant because it shows uh, his wife and, and the impact on her, for example. So, of course, the fact that Nick Bailey had become a victim of this Novichok attack, it did prompt the police to consider the troubling possibility that there could indeed be more rogue samples of Novichok yet to be found around the town of Salisbury. As a precaution, Salisbury was placed into a state of partial lockdown. So can you see those parallels with COVID? It's mm. so interesting. And large areas of the town were then blocked off and declared an exclusion zone. And specially trained officers began taking swabs from other benches, from walls, floors, surfaces, bus stops and shops all around the town. And after three days, the army were deployed to the town to provide further assistance to the police. And you know it's serious then. It was just horrific. Just like the people inside obviously having to deal with being terrified, but also the logistics of your you're locked in your house and you can't go to a shop and you can't go out and even if you have to go out like it was it was different you know like the covid lockdowns were very different it was like here's the rules and organized yeah yeah and people like i've i'm I'm sure I've said before, I thought some of it was absolutely ridiculous. Like, on Thursday, we will be doing X. If it's that serious, you'd be doing it. Like, my opinion was always, if it's that serious, you'd do it straight away. It wouldn't be, you can go get your nails done until Thursday, and then you can't go to this, that, and the other. Whereas, at this point in Salisbury, it was just literally, what you've got in the house is what you've got in the house. The army were delivering food and water and stuff. But even then, the terrifying thing of, well, do I do I risk that, I can eat and drink that, like that's been outside my house. Like it was just absolutely like out of a film, out of a film and being close by as well. You then worry, is that cordon, is that circle enough? Is it far apart? You know, is it going to be further into Wiltshire, somewhere else in a different part of Wiltshire? It was, yeah, so, so surreal. And and I suppose if you don't really know much about Novichok, and we don't know, we're not no one's an expert on it. Even the scientists at Port and Down are not really experts on exactly the chemical compound there. So can it get into the air, and can it contaminate like other gases and things? Um, so there would have been yeah huge concerns. I always remember with lockdowns, yeah, we'd we'd quite often get a warning, wouldn't we, that we'd be plunged into lockdown in a few days. I'd immediately go to the supermarket and buy multiple bottles of wine so that I had all of the emergency supplies in. But yeah, you're right. With this, you couldn't, you know, this they had to make do with what they had at home. Behind the scenes, detectives raced to track the movements of Sergei Swipple and his daughter Yulia in the hours leading up to the moment they were discovered on that bench. After a deep dive into Salisbury's CCTV network, the police were able to ascertain that in the hours prior to being found unconscious on that bench, Sergei and Yulia had visited a pub in the late morning of that day, which I thought was a bit naughty, Bethan. Why, why do you mean? What, because they were having late a drink morning, late visiting morning? visiting a pub? Yeah, I, I don't personally agree with that. Well, do you know that they were visiting a pub to have alcoholic beverages, or were they having a coffee in a Weatherspoons like my grandma likes to do? Yeah, I think they were drinking. I think they were knocking it back at the really? pub. Really? 
at probably 11 o'clock in the morning. Yeah, because they were drinking when they went on to have lunch at ZZ's. Were at the they? ZZ oh, restaurant. maybe they were then. Yeah, um, so... I mean, I'm not having a go at them. I'm just saying... Like, it feels like, like oh, you are okay. having a go, Mark. It feels like you're being little judgy pants over here. Hmm. Well, I am, I suppose, but fine. No, I do know what you mean, though, because that is a bit cheeky to have a drink in the morning. But then it's a Sunday as well, Mark. It's not a, it's not a Wednesday. I suppose... You know you with your dinners. Yeah, true, This true. would be me, I think. Yeah. A Saturday or a Sunday, day drinking's not an issue. <laughs> On the weekdays, I have a bit of an issue. Yeah, I'd probably agree with that, actually. Anyway, that is not important. So, uh, yeah, so they did this deep dive of Salisbury CCTV network. Uh, Sergey and Yulia had visited a pub in, in the late morning. It was late morning, at least, before eating lunch at a ZZ restaurant in the Malting shopping area. And, of course, both locations were immediately evacuated and vigorously examined for traces of Novichok. Thankfully, none were found, but I know that that ZZ restaurant was closed for a long time after this. Um, even though traces weren't found, uh, I think it was basically bulldozed it from the inside out, really, to kind of uh, ensure that it was safe. And I think as well, even though you may well know that it's safe, just to put public my, like mines at rest as well you yeah. would want to kind of go over the top with your refurbishing or redecorating or anything just to kind of get away from the stigma of that and the worries that people would have because no matter how much you tell them that's fine a friend of mine recently was going to Salisbury for the day he was going to go for the weekend or like a, a day off or something and obviously the first thing everyone said was like oh don't want to get poisoned and it's so yeah. like obviously it's just a joke in bad taste it was just like a bit of dark humor but it's interesting that prior to this happening had someone said to me i'm going to salisbury i'd be like oh my gosh it's beautiful that would have been my first reaction or the whole group of people would have been like oh it's so beautiful there oh it's such a lovely place to visit where are you going to eat and so it even this far afterwards and knowing now what we know about who the intended target is and that sort of thing, you still have that element of the whole place is tarnished with that. You're absolutely right. It, it is the reputation of, of that city is tarnished and you say the word Salisbury or refer to that location and immediately, yeah, people's first thoughts are, oh, Salisbury, the Salisbury poisonings, that's what people think. And that there were concerns certainly for months and years afterwards that the ta the city was still contaminated. I always refer to it as a town because it's so small, but um, but it is a city. But yeah, there were huge concerns. And I, I kind of, I, I was the same, if I'm honest. I sort of avoided it and it did play a little part in my decision not to move there. Um, although I am, I am certain that it is safe, but but yes, I'm sorry that that's kind of how I thought, but I did. I'm just being honest. Yeah, you have to be honest. Like I, I'm happy that it's yeah. not. But even then, like it's still like a, it's still in the back of your head. It's crazy. It's a bit like when, um, so we uh, in the most recent episode of Crime Wave, we covered the case of Eleanor Williams, who had cried rape, falsely cried rape, and and reported allegations of rape and trafficking against numerous men and it's a bit like mud sticks unfortunately and people do think there's no smoke without fire so even though those men are absolutely innocent there will always be a tiny percentage within some people that thinks that they perhaps were involved in something and were guilty and it's a bit like with Salisbury there's for me there's a tiny percentage that thinks but is it really still safe is it still safe now five years on I don't know it's because you're so paranoid it must be. You it must be all the drugs I take. Mark. I know, I probably need to just snap out of it. Anyway, let's get back onto it. So the residents of Salisbury would later reflect on the surrealism of all of this, commenting to journalists that their once beautiful, albeit relatively boring city, definitely beautiful though, now resembled something out of a disaster movie. It really did. It was crawling with military personnel and men wearing full protective bodysuits and masks coming in and out of forensic tents. It, it really was like uh, a movie set had, had descended on the city. It was also revealed that prior to collapsing on the bench next to her father, Yulia had been in the UK for less than 24 hours. She had flown in to visit her father at roughly the same time that his would-be killers had been dispatched to take him out. So there was no doubt that her father, Sergei, had been the assassin's target and that Yulia had almost lost her life because she was just basically in the wrong place at the wrong time. Really sad. 
to, to think that she could have died as a result of this too and would have been, an, uh, well, they're both innocent victims, but she wasn't even the intended target. She would have just been a byproduct of the ass- assassination on Sergei. And I do then start to wonder, you know, were the assassins already in the UK or were they flown from Russia? And had she flown from Russia? I'm sure there's there's plenty of places you can fly from Russia to the UK and there's plenty of planes and that sort of thing. But it just makes you think like, imagine if she was on the same plane and they didn't even realise and she didn't even realise or something like that. I, I think I, I mean I'll come on to that in more detail. Now, no, it's no, no. I mean, I, you're absolutely right to think that because they could have been. They the assassins, which I will come on to that. They'd actually flown in from Moscow uh, on wow. a jet bound for Gatwick. I, it wasn't the same plane as as Yulia. Oh, okay. Um, but it was. It wasn't. You know too far off in terms of, of when she came here. And I think also, I think it's kind of fair to say at this point that there were probably some suspicions around Yulia that, you know, when you start piecing all of this together at this time, it's like, we've got Sergei, we know about his history working for MI6, uh, basically being convicted of treason against Russia. He's a double agent. Um, his daughter then comes, it's a real coincidence, his daughter comes over from Russia and he is then found dead and, well, not dead, sorry, but, you know, practically nearly dead on a bench and she is nearly, like, in the same state. Was she Was she the one that was administering yeah, wow, this poison and had just got it on herself? A question to ask. Yeah, absolutely. And we saw it with the assassination of Kim Yong-nam, mm-hmm. Kim Yong-un's brother. Uh, which happened in Kuala Lumpur Airport. And we had those two women. You, do you remember one had that sweater on that said lol? Yeah. As she's going and around poisoning realize, people. But they were the No, ones who and did she it, had it so. all over her. Yeah. And she, she was contaminated with it. And she was, she vomited in the taxi on her way out of that airport because she had contaminated herself with a nerve agent that she'd used to kill Kim Yong Nam. She survived. But it could have been the case that Yulia had been a an unwitting victim of her own assassination attempt on her own father. That wasn't the case. That's um, you know, just it, it was, was a potential time, time, I suppose. Yeah. Wow. yeah, yeah. Behind the scenes, the police were busy trying to assist the investigation to determine exactly where and how Sergey and his daughter Yulia had had been exposed to Novichok. And it took them two weeks, but the police eventually figured out that the assassins had sprayed a deadly amount of the nerve agent on the front door handle of Sergei's house, which I thought oh, was wow. really interesting. And that's why I always open my own front door with gloves. Little life hack for oh you my God, to prevent Mark. being contaminated with the nerve agent. I think that's sound <sighs> advice. Okay, Don't sound you? advice. You do what you need to do, Mark. I'd like to see you adopt the same cautionary approach, please, Bethan. Cautionary approach or paranoid, <laughs> bit mental approach? <laughs> do you know what, though? Some things stick with you and you do then take on habits that other people may just think, whoa, you're, you're really paranoid about that. Like, I always check the back seats of my car, even though I know full well there's nobody hiding in my car. I always check the back seats of my car before I get in the front. And it's quite nice now because I've got two children's seats in the back. So it would be, it's really hard to hide in there. So nobody would, but nobody did anyway. Like, why was I, but I, that's, that's one of my weird little habits. I would also just like to add that I don't really use gloves to open my door. And I probably, I shouldn't, I shouldn't be laughing at this, but you know, it's, uh, most people know that Sergey and Yulia and also Nick Bailey, the PC that was contaminated, they all did go on to, to make a recovery. So, um, but, but there is a tragic, actually a very tragic end to this, Mm. which we'll come on to shortly. So, um, apologies, but you know, I was just having a bit of a, a joke about the paranoia. So, of course, the fact that the front door of Sergei's home had been sprayed with Novichok kind of explains why PC Nick Bailey had also become critically ill after visiting the property. And presumably he would have touched that door handle to check if the house was locked before forcing entry, um, which you would, wouldn't you? And only one person of the two officers that were there to force entry or check the property to make sure nobody else was inside. Uh, only one person would have put their hand on that front door handle. You wouldn't both check it, would no. you? And it just happened to be Nick Bailey. Elsewhere, counterterrorism agents from Scotland Yard worked diligently to try and identify the person or persons responsible for this despicable attack. A major international crime had been committed on British soil and the UK demanded justice. And it really was the whole of this country were demanding justice for Sergei and Yulia and also for Nick at this time. 
Working with the theory that the men were foreign agents who had travelled from Russia specifically to carry out this attack, detectives scoured hundreds of hours of CCTV footage taken from a number of UK airports, and before long they'd picked up a trail of two men who were strongly believed to be the culprits. A large CCTV trail spanning hundreds of miles tracked the suspects 48 hours in the UK. As I said earlier, they had arrived on an early morning flight, as it was, from Moscow to Gatwick Airport, they then stayed at a hotel close to the airport, and then the following day they had both boarded a train bound for Salisbury. Dressed as regular tourists, they walked around the area and took pictures of famous landmarks and visited the most popular tourist spots before getting back on the train and heading back to London. And it reminded me of the Peru too, because that's what they did when they went to Peru to collect these drugs. They went round and acted as tourists so as not to draw attention to themselves. And they took normal kind of photos and all of that to kind of build yeah, just that to backstory make sure that, that we are Yeah, it's a good, it's a good backstory. It's just an odd one as well, isn't it? Because you do then think, like, I'd, I'd love to know more about what's going on in their minds. Like with the Peru 2, it's a different scenario because they're not actually trained assassins, like criminals, whereas these are trained assassins. So are they just literally taking the photographs and that's just part of the disguise? Or potentially, are they actually kind of going, do you know what? We've had to come here for a mission, but we're going to also enjoy ourselves. Like, I just would love no, to I, know I more. Know. Like, do they actually kind of go, wow, this is the UK, this is England, we've not been here before, this is somewhere different, or are they literally closed off, no thoughts whatsoever, they've got a mission at the end of the day, and they are just snapping photos at random to try and keep up a pretense. Like, I, oh, I just find things like this so fascinating. I, yeah, I think I think that's interesting. I, I I personally think they were very much focused on the mission, and it was a mission to assassinate somebody. And this actually was this initial trip to Salisbury because they go in for the day, they go back into London. This was a reconnaissance trip, so the next day they then go back to Salisbury to carry out this attack. So this was very much reconnaissance. But yeah, they they probably I don't know the exact details, but they they probably would have had a day out and they would have seen these tourist spots. And they're still human beings, so they would have experienced the same feelings that lots of people would experience when they see, uh, you know, dramatic landscape or an amazing cathedral. They probably were like, oh, this is really interesting and we'll be back tomorrow to kill someone. Mm, it's mad, isn't it? It's a really weird thing to think about. And and also, you know, that was a Saturday. People, the residents of Salisbury were going about their business in the in the city centre that day, going for lunch, going for coffee, doing some shopping, multiple people would have walked past these two men, and they they are Russian assassins. And you'd never in, in in a million years think that you might ever walk past a Russian assassin in your home city. It's a really weird thought, isn't it? Oh, I don't like it. Yeah. So yeah, like I said, they dressed as regular tourists, walked around, they took pictures of famous landmarks, they visited the tourist hotspots, they then get back on the train and head back into London. They blended in well, however, this apparently innocent day out in Salisbury was definitely believed to have been this kind of reconnaissance mission, because they had a really risky job to do and they wanted to get a feel for the battleground on which they would be carrying out their attack. The men returned to Salisbury, as I said, the following day, the Sunday, but this time they didn't head into the centre, and their CCTV trail was lost for most of the visit. Later that day, at around about the time Sergei and Yulia were discovered close to death on that bench in the town centre, the city centre, the two men were racing back to London to catch a flight out of the country. So they had, you know, they have gone to Sergei's home, they have sprayed the door handle with Novichok, and they have got straight on the train into London onto Gatwick and they are well it was Moscow it was um Heathrow actually and they are on basically on the first plane bound back to Moscow as this is all kind of unfolding wow so these two assassins or would-be assassins spent both nights in the UK at the City Stay Hotel next to Bow Church DLR station in Bow in East London. And actually a small capsule of Novichok was later found in their hotel room after police sealed it off on the 4th of May in 2018. I mean, it's madness. This happened in March. And yeah, later they, they do find where they stayed and the room and they find a small capsule. But fortunately, it had been properly kind of sealed. God, I mean, like that shows how shit the cleaning's been. But thank 
God that the cleaner didn't do a decent job and, you know, like break something or become exposed. But the hell? Like, where was this hidden or like buried or something? Because knows. surely the, they should have been cleaning that room. Uh, so with their two main suspects now long gone and safely back on Russian soil, any hope of a prosecution looked minuscule at best. The culprits had escaped and they would probably never return to the UK. However, after careful collaboration with the UK intelligence services, they were able to find out the names of the two men involved. So they were Alexander Petrov and Ruslan Boshirov, two Russian nationals who the UK government believed were working for the notorious GRU, Russia's globally feared branch of military intelligence, the very same agency that Sergei had once himself been a part of. Due to the highly clandestine nature of the GRU's foreign operations, the exact reason why Sergei was marked for assassination by his former employers may never be known. All we do know is that at some point in his career, Sergei had become disillusioned with his work and he'd also become quite critical of the Russian government. He was then eventually sent to Spain to gather intelligence by them. But whilst he was there, he was approached by British Secret Service agents who convinced him to turn on the motherland and become a double agent for Britain. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. And, uh, you know, which I kind of understand because he's become disillusioned with Russia and their ethics in all of this. And he's kind of vulnerable then to being turned against his home country. And that is exactly what happened. And I suppose Britain, British agents said, we can, we can offer you security now. Um, and we'll, you know, that they basically, yeah, brought him over to the UK, put him in, you know, this location in a house and he he probably was monitored i would say quite heavily by security services to make sure that he wasn't like double double crossing the uk so all of his phones would have been tapped i'm sure and they would have been keeping a close eye on him uh, to check up on him for his own safety but also to make sure that he was doing what he should have been doing of course, over several years, Sergei Skripal was said to have betrayed a great number of his former friends and colleagues in the GRU, and he provided MI6 with hundreds of names and addresses and details of ongoing Russian operations abroad. And this went on for years until he was obviously then caught in the early noughties, and then ultimately this plea bargain was uh, facilitated between Britain and Russia, and he was released and repatriated to his kind of new home in, in Salisbury. Um, and I just wanted to kind of say, you know, this wasn't the first time the Russians had carried out dangerously reckless assassinations against their defectors on UK soil. And we'll all be familiar with this. So in 2006, a British naturalised Russian defector and former officer of the Russian Federal Security Service named Alexander Litvinenko died in agony several days after two Russian assassins infiltrated the kitchen of his favourite restaurant at a hotel and laced his tea with a deadly dose of a highly radioactive toxin called polonium-210. His killers fled the country after murdering him and despite several appeals for justice from the UK government Russia refused to extradite the men that were responsible and that resulted in a major international scandal and fierce animosity between the two nations and we all remember that don't we because it was it was truly shocking this happened in central London at a world-renowned hotel and these two guys had managed to get into the kitchens and poison the teapots or the teacup uh, that Alexander Litvinenko drank from with this polonium-210. Uh, it's just, it's a kind of stuff out of um, Mission Impossible or James Bond, isn't it? It is, it's awful. It's just scary, isn't it? And I think, yeah, anybody who knows about um, Alexander Litvinenko's case will remember the pictures of him, and it's just, it was just terrifying as well that that's like, Again, like this case, it's on our soil, it's in our places that we naturally would feel safe and secure and suddenly it's not. It's just, yeah, it's just horrific. Yeah. So, as I said, there was fierce animosity between Russia and Britain at this point, and it looked as though Russia had blatantly, at this point, at the time of Sergei and Yulia's attack, Russia had just blatantly disregarded all previous warnings from the UK about employing the use of chemical weapons on our soil, and had once again carried out a hit job using highly dangerous means. But we might never really know the true motive, 
Either way, the incident sparked a major diplomatic row between the UK and Russia, with both sides expelling diplomats in a tit-for-tat exchange. And you see that all the time. It's like, we'll uh, send the Russian diplomats back to Russia. It's like, get out of our country. They then do the same. And it happens with uh, all sorts of countries when we're in these kind of situations. No secrets were kept from the UK side, and the UK Prime Minister at the time, Theresa May, was quick to publicly condemn Russia's actions, stating in Parliament, the government has concluded that it is highly likely that Russia was responsible for the attack against Sergei and Yulia Skripal. So historically, things like this had tried, quite often tried to be hushed up by the government, but that wasn't the case here. The reaction of the wider international community was also divided, with some countries siding with the UK and others expressing scepticism about the British government's claims. To the surprise of absolutely no one, Russia's President Vladimir Putin strongly denied any involvement in the Salisbury poisonings and suggested that the UK government's allegations were part of a broader campaign to discredit Russia. Putin also stated that the British security services had made a mistake. He said Petrov and Bosharov were simply Russian civilian tourists and that they had nothing to do with the attack. Of course he would say that. Mm. I like to think, because Russia hate gay people, I like to think, well, you know, if they were innocent, maybe they were just two lovers over here enjoying the surroundings um, as boyfriend and boyfriend because they wouldn't be allowed to do that over in Russia. I like that. That's a good way to think of it. I mean, they weren't. They were definitely, definitely on a mission. Um, you'd be a bit, you'd be a bit pissed off, wouldn't you, if you, if your boyfriend was like, "We're going to go to England for a little trip, but you get to see the hotel in London for two nights and one day in one place." <laughs> but um, that would be a good fuck you to Russia, wouldn't it? <laughs> Well, that's kind of what that was my thinking behind yeah. it, really, that Russia would hate that thought that I'm thinking of them uh, having this beautiful romance in, in England. Um, so uh, hopefully, maybe I will have to use gloves now to open my front door. Um, at the end of March, <laughs> around three weeks after, <laughs> at the end of March, around three weeks after the original nightmare began, PC Nick Bailey did make a full recovery and was discharged from hospital. And not long after this, it was announced that Yulia's condition was improving and she was no longer in a critical condition. And then by mid-April, doctors confirmed that Sergei was no longer in a critical condition and was responding well to treatment, which was lovely to hear. I think we all rejoiced in that fact, I remember, around that time. Mm. But by the 18th of May, all three of them had been discharged from the hospital completely. I don't know what the long-term impact was potentially on Yulia and particularly Sergei being older. I don't know if they went on to make full recoveries or whether they uh, there was some kind of lasting damage. But either way, they were able to be released from hospital and, and you know, had made a proper recovery. Despite the brazen recklessness of Putin's professional killers, they had failed in their mission to end the life of Sergei Skripal. Yulia Skripal and PC Nick Bailey had also survived this ordeal, and to everyone's relief it looked as if the whole incident had passed everyone by without any fatalities. But very tragically, this would not be the case in the end. On the 30th of June that same year in 2018, a 44-year-old Salisbury woman named Dawn Sturgis and her partner Charlie Rowley found what they believed was a discarded perfume bottle in a park in Amesbury, a town near to Salisbury. They brought the bottle back to their home and Sturgis sprayed some of the substance on her wrists. She believed it to be perfume. Within hours, she began to experience symptoms of nerve agent poisoning, including vomiting and convulsions. She was rushed to hospital and placed in intensive care. Charlie Rowley spent weeks in intensive care, but ultimately he survived. Tragically, however, Mysturgis never recovered from that poisoning, and she passed away on July the 8th in 2018, and my heart breaks for that. It's It's so sad, isn't it? It it really is. I think they were they were a troubled couple. I think they had alcohol problems as well and um, were quite vulnerable. And I just kind of picture Dawn finding this bottle of perfume or perhaps Charlie had found it and given it to her. And I don't think they probably had a lot and that probably felt quite special and maybe a treat. And she sprayed it on herself innocently. And of course, little did she know, she was directly spraying herself with Novichok and and it would cost her her life quite a large amount if you think of how much comes out in one spray as well and you said before that even one milligram can be yeah can be deadly 
um, but two definitely would be. And you think of how much comes out. You're not just going to do one spritz, probably. You're probably going to go or something like I. And especially if you're kind of like, oh, we found some nice perfume. Let's have a smell. Like you're not, you're not being conservative with it. So no, it's just no. oh, it's so sad. It really is. And I didn't realize that about them being quite vulnerable as well. It kind of makes a little bit more sense to me as to why they would have picked it up and then wanted yeah. to try spraying it as well that kind of gives more of a background to that because i didn't realize that before it's just oh that's horrible isn't it this element to the whole case yeah very very sad and and quite often kind of overlooked really in the bigger picture the bigger part of this story around yulia and sergey and nick bailey as well so the ensuing investigation into Dawn's death led to an international outcry, with the British government once again accusing the Russian intelligence agencies of being responsible for that attack, um, which it kind of was, really. They were responsible for that, and we now have a death as a result of it. The perfume bottle, which was strongly believed to be the container which the GRU agents had used to attack Sergei Skripal, or had used to kind of then spray it on his door, was sent to Porton Down for analysis. And before being destroyed, it was confirmed that the bottle contained enough Novichok, as I said earlier, to potentially kill thousands of people. So for Dawn spraying it, like you say, on her wrists, that would have been quite a lot, and it's very much direct contamination. In September 2018, the UK police released images and CCTV footage of Petrov and Bosharov and called on them to come forward and provide an explanation for their actions. The two men later appeared in an interview on the RT, which is Russian state media channel, in which they claimed that they were tourists visiting Salisbury and had no connection to this attack. And both men strongly denied having any involvement whatsoever with Russian spying activities or with the GRU. And despite insisting that they were innocent, both men point blank refused to travel back to England to stand trial. Which I kind of get, because even if they were innocent, if you didn't have to come back, you wouldn't. Um, and even if you are innocent, you know that the UK public think you're guilty and you're not we're going to, go for you, in yeah. your opinion, get a fair trial. Because you're going to yeah. be like, well, that country thinks that we're guilty and we were just two men having a lover's holiday and they all think yeah. we're guilty, so we will be found guilty. So if you don't have to, if you can refuse to and your country backs you on that, then yeah, I get that. It's it's shitty from our side of things, but I get it from their side. I find it weird that they went, because they were obviously told to go on Russian state television and to kind of... Uh, give their side of things which is this bullshit story of them having this lover's holiday um i find it weird that that russian intelligence forces kind of forced them to do that because they're so arrogant russia that they would have just gone well you can think what you want in the uk we've kind of said it's nothing to do with us the fact that they're then you know it's almost like the lady doth protest too much isn't it and that lady is putin so um, since their recovery, Sergei and Yulia have kept a very low profile and their whereabouts have not been publicly disclosed. Um, they will have absolutely been given new names, uh, moved to a different part of the country or another country and um, and will have been looked after, I would, I'm sure, by uh, UK security services for the rest of their lives. They'll be looked after now. They, they have to be. Mm-hmm. In a statement released in November 2019, Yulia Skripal said that she and her father were grateful for the offers of assistance from the Russian embassy, but at the moment, they do not wish to avail ourselves of their services. Um, so I think Russia had kind of dipped in and said, come back, come back to Russia. Yeah, don't listen to that. Christ, don't do that. No, not at all. And she also stated that they are, quote, focusing on helping dad to make a full recovery and are not yet ready to speak to the press. And they've never spoken to the press. And that's obviously part of the deal Mm -hmm. that they've struck with the authorities in the UK. Nick Bailey, the PC in Salisbury, uh, who was also contaminated, eventually left the force saying that he could no longer deal with being in a police environment. Those were his exact words. Um, which is understandable, and he eventually sued his former employers and reached a financial settlement in 2022. God knows, yeah, because they should have investigated that, that a lot sooner be. than sending people to the house. And if they'd yeah. have known about what it was prior, then they would have potentially sent in hazmat to check the house rather than just standard police officers using like not gloved hands and stuff. Yeah, I mean, I think the the psychological trauma from from this and his involvement in this 
would be lifelong and who knows there might be some physical manifestations of it that he has to deal with for the remainder of his life and just working in that police environment is constantly going to trigger you and yeah I mean that financial settlement I mean I don't know it might have just been like 70 grand or something but I wouldn't be surprised if you're talking late hundreds of thousands enough to basically never have to work again to move out of Salisbury and and start your life over with your family. I hope that it was enough for him to not have to work again and to just be able to continue just a normal life with his family. The events of 2018 were a sobering reminder of the dangers that exist in this world and the lengths to which some will go to achieve their aims. The Salisbury poisonings will always be remembered as a turning point in the fight against terrorism and a reminder of the importance of international cooperation in the face of such threats. So a bit of a different case, I would say, for us, because we've delved into terrorism again, really, it is an act of terrorism, which we have looked at previously. But yeah, very different, very, very tragic that there was a death in this and that Dawn lost her life some months later um, as a result of innocently spraying that perfume on her wrists. Incredibly sad. And then we find that, you know, that capsule found, uh, you know, a bit later on as well in that hotel room where the assassins had stayed. Uh, you, you do worry. I know I'm going back to the paranoia, but you do sort of think, you know, what else is out there? Is there anything else out there? So yeah, be careful. Just don't, if you find something, don't investigate by yourself. No. Correct. And I suppose people are pretty good with that. You know, if people see backpacks that have been abandoned, they will alert authorities and stuff. We're um, heading into PSA territory now. So um, thank you for listening. Don't forget to check out our show sponsor. That's gusto.co.uk and use code SEEINGRED for 60% off your first box and then 25% off all boxes for two months. And if you are able to and would like to support us on Patreon, don't forget there is a whole wealth of bonus content at your fingertips there as a reward for financially contributing to the running of this show, which keeps us going. So do check it out. Head over to patreon.com slash seeing red podcast. And we'll be back very soon for another episode. Bye.